Does President Joe Biden have what it takes to stand with Ukraine without provoking a wider war? Will Biden's Disinformation Governance Board protect Americans or quench their freedoms? How could the U.S. Supreme Court allow the unprecedented leak of its draft opinion revoking Roe v. Wade? And how will the court navigate the apparently complex religious freedom cases now before it? We'll talk about all this and more in today's episode of Independent Outlook. Hello, everyone. I'm Graham Walker coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, right across the bay from San Francisco. Usually, we launch right into our topics. But before we get into today's discussion, we need to pause for a moment. As many of you may know, this is our first broadcast without David Thoreau, the founder of the Independent Institute, who passed away suddenly and unexpectedly 11 days ago, just a few days after our last broadcast. David Thoreau founded the Independent Institute as an academic, nonprofit, public policy research and educational organization back in 1986. He also founded and led the C.S. Lewis Society of California. You might like to see this wonderful image of David, which we shared on our website. A remarkable man. Here's another image of David uh, a few years ago talking with Peter Thiel. David authored dozens of scholarly and commentary articles and as publisher directed the publication of more than 140 scholarly books. He also created and was publisher of our influential quarterly journal, The Independent Review. Would you take a moment of silence with me in recognition of David Thoreau? Thank you very much. Naturally, uh, the Independent Institute is carrying on vigorously in order to honor David's legacy, and that includes carrying on with today's discussion. So let's get started. And I'm glad to tell you that today I'm joined by two of David's longtime colleagues, uh, uh, Ivan Eland and William Watkins. Let me begin with Ivan. Um, so glad to see you, Ivan. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure, really. Ivan, of course, is a senior fellow here at the Independent Institute. He's the director of our Center on Peace and Liberty. He holds a PhD uh, from George Washington University, author of multiple books, including most recently with Independent Institute, War and the Rogue Presidency, Restoring the Republic After Congressional Failure. I highly recommend it. You've got another book coming up, Ivan. I think the tentative title is Piercing the Fog of War. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And in the book, you're going to unpack some misperceptions, right? Yes. Well, yes. I, it's basically the subtitle is The Scourge of War Begins and Ends at Home. I talk about the domestic causes of, of some of our wars, which no one ever likes to talk about, uh, uh, the, the politics behind them, and then also the domestic ill effects of these wars, which, again, probably the most important uh, effect of any war, we've completely lost sight of what the founders realized that overseas war uh, undermines liberty and society at home. And so Indeed. I go into those for various wars. So watch, watch your uh, bookshelf coming up soon. Uh, also, of course, you may know Ivan from his publications. He's been in Los Angeles Times, USA Today, in New York Times even. He's been on TV, PBS, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and so forth. Glad to have Ivan with us uh, very much. Also now, William Watkins Jr. Hello, Bill. Graham, good to see you. Nice to be with you today. Thank you. I'm grateful for your joining us today. Uh, Bill Watkins is a research fellow here at the Independent Institute. Um, 
author of, among other things, this wonderful book published by Independent called Crossroads for Liberty, Recovering the Anti-Federalist Values of America's First Constitution, highly recommended. Uh, uh, Bill is published, authored in such legal journals, the South Carolina Law Review, Duke Journal of Constitutional Law and Public Policy. You may have seen his writings in Forbes, USA Today, San Francisco Examiner, and so forth. <laughs> so I love to, to, to brag on my colleagues, but really the reason you're here is because you both know a great deal about the world. Uh, and I'm going to start with Ivan. Um, Ivan, foreign affairs is your specialty, especially military matters. We're looking across the Atlantic at Ukraine, and I'm just wondering, what's the status of things now? Can you imagine from what you see, Ivan, some kind of reasonably peaceful way out of this? Well, unfortunately, at this point, it doesn't, the, the solution is not obvious because both sides uh, want to keep fighting. Uh, the Ukrainians, because they've had such great success, uh, they've been given weapons and, and training by the West. Uh, they're vastly outnumbered materially and uh, in terms of uh, personnel, but they've done uh, very well so far. So they want to keep going. They want to even uh, kick the Russians out of the disputed Southeast if they can, I think. Well, I don't know if that's possible, but that's that. I think they're getting higher expectations by the day. And um, the Russians want to fight to get some sort of a victory out of this because uh, you know, they, they haven't performed very well, either in, uh, on the assault on Kiev or so far in the area where everyone thought they might do better in the southeast of uh, in the Donbass region. Uh, why does Russia have its focus on <clears throat> the southeast and the, and the Baltic? I mean, the uh, uh, Black Sea coast? Well, uh, first of all, the Donbass was already uh, there was already fighting there since 2014. Uh, Putin sees Russian-speaking people there as his natural allies, and some of them are because there's separatists that don't want to be part of Ukraine uh, since 2014. Uh, there's other Russian-speaking uh, people in that area, however, uh, who have you know, been violently opposed to the Russian invasion. Uh, they thought they were going to take Kharkiv, which is, you know, in that just a little north of there, which is the second largest city in Ukraine. They thought they were going to take it in a half a day. And here we are three months later and Kharkiv is still not, you know, taken. So uh, invaders often go where they think they're going to have a friendly population because it lowers occupation costs, both in killed and wounded soldiers and, you know, in terms of expenses, um, expended military hardware and stuff. So that's what this is our last uh, resort, I guess, after not being able to take Kiev uh, when they wanted to get the capital. They thought that would fall in three days, but of course it didn't. And so they eventually decided to pull out, cut their losses and move their forces down to the southeast uh, uh, and consolidate them there. And they're trying to uh, push back the Ukrainians because they only had part of the uh, southeastern portion. They want Luhansk and Donetsk, the two provinces down there. Uh, they want the mm -hmm. whole thing. And who knows, maybe more. And as you point out, they also, I think they've got part of the, they've established a land bridge from Crimea uh, to uh, uh, the, the Donbass region, if they can get Mariupol. 
And some indications are today that they're inside Mariupol now. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. disputed whether that's fallen or not. That's the last thing. That's the last town there. And then if they go the other way, uh, they have Hirson, uh, and they they might try to take Odessa and go all the way to Moldova because in Moldova, which is right next to the just to the west of Ukraine, there's also a Russian speaking area. Uh, which they which they already have troops in, so uh, they might want to cut off uh, Ukraine's seacoast because, of course, they think that would greatly handicap Ukraine. Indeed, uh, it would bring it under more under Russian control, even if they don't get the let, whole country. Let me just pause for a second and uh, remind everybody that we do welcome so many participants from around the country who are with us on this conversation. Uh, people are joining us via our YouTube page, our Facebook page, Vimeo, Twitter, and all of our friends over at thinkspot.com. Just a word of welcome to all of them. And in fact, already I'm getting uh, some comments from our participants. Uh, one of our friends named Christy says that she's hoping the G20 summit will bring some resolution. Any comment on that, Ivan? Well, I'm not sure that that's where it's going to be decided. I think uh, the real problem here, sometimes when you flood the, a place with weapons or you become allied with a, with a group or a, a country uh, and they're small and you're backing them up against a bigger country, this has already happened in Georgia in 2008 when uh, George Bush told Ukraine and Georgia they would eventually get into NATO. Well, what did the leader of Georgia do? He started a war in uh, the separatist regions of uh, uh, Georgia. And uh, this gets lost, that he's the one that started the war. And of course, the Russians invaded. Now, they didn't take the whole country at that point. They just took over the separatist regions. So uh, you have to be careful that Ukraine doesn't get so triumphalist in what's happened that they get to be uncontrollable and uh, do things that, uh, uh, might get us into trouble escalation with Russia. I mean, some of these attacks, the Ukrainians are already seem to be attacking into Russia, you know, fuel depots, military right. infrastructure, mm -hmm. even near Moscow. Uh, these mm -hmm. are sporadic attacks, but, you know, they could cause problems. I think uh, some of the rhetoric out of the Biden administration has been excessive in that uh, they called uh, 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 Putin a war criminal. Uh, they mm -hmm. termed it genocide in Ukraine. Uh, they've said they want to uh, win the war, help Ukraine win the war, that is, and then also weaken and Russia. Weaken now, Russia. That's the part that really struck me. Right. Well, and that, you know, part of the, that we need to go back in time to look at the roots of this conflict. And NATO bears some responsibility for this, although I'm, you know, it's hard not to blame Putin for invading another country and brutalizing it like he's doing. But you have to look at the reasons, as as Rand Paul pointed out um, in in the Senate the other day. Yeah, he did. I'll just interrupt you briefly. I'm looking at this piece from the Washington Post uh, from a few days ago. So apparently it was last Tuesday. Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, had a, a rather feisty exchange with uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Uh, and on uh, last week, the Washington Post published this thing saying Rand Paul is partly right. <laughs> And, and in that conversation, apparently, Rand Paul said, uh, while there is no justification for Putin's war on Ukraine, it does not follow that there's no explanation for the invasion. So, so Rand Paul was trying to, you know, walk a fine line there between 
justifying it and explaining it, his explanation was uh, a great deal to do with the way that other countries, including Russia, perceive the expansion of NATO. Uh, so even the Washington Post is sort of admitting, or did admit, that Rand Paul's caution about the expansion of NATO may not have been so far off the mark. Uh, so maybe you're in good company if both the Washington Post and Rand Paul seem to be cautioning along the, the lines of NATO. Is that is that fair? Well, I think that's sort of remarkable, given the Washington Post's history of being rather hawkish on everything uh, that we do overseas. So I think, you know, Americans aren't very good at remembering anything or and they're not good at introspection when the United States government might have at least played a role in something. And mm -hmm. certainly uh, the trouble started really in 2004 and 2008. And it both, what's common with those years is that the, the NATO alliance is either talking about expanding or expanding. In the 2008 um, summit, NATO summit, that's when George Bush, George W. Bush, that is, said, you know, we're eventually going to let Ukraine and, and Georgia in. And that really, uh, really soured relations with Putin. And I, and I would even say, if you really want to go um, go a little farther, Putin is such a nationalist leader and Russians tend to like strong leaders, but he's really an ultra nationalist KGB agent and former KGB agent. And one of the reasons I think he, he, he was able to take power was the fact that NATO was already expanding. Uh, it expanded in 1999 for the first time. And that's when he started his ascent to power. And so, you know, he may never have even been uh, the leader of Russia had not uh, NATO been NATO expanded. I'm not saying it's the only reason, but it's it certainly. No, role certainly. In yeah, I, I'm going to turn to our uh, other colleague, Bill Watkins, in a minute here. But you're just you're reminding me of something else I read in the Post, Ivan. Fascinating. I didn't know this, but uh, George Kennan, the famous American diplomat, uh, he wrote in 1997 that expanding NATO would be, quote, the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era and would inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion. That's George Kennan. He's no, you know, right wing icon. Uh, he, he's one of part of the mainstream foreign policy establishment cautioning back in 1997 that pushing for the expansion of NATO, which President George W. Bush did push for with bipartisan support would be a fateful error. So you agree with George Kennan, apparently, too, Ivan? Yes, well, I think this mistake has been made before in history. Uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, you know, Napoleon just tromped around Europe doing what he wanted, and he was finally defeated in the Congress mm -hmm. of Vienna in 1815. The other European countries, you know, by gritting their teeth, they brought France back into the European world. Uh, of course, they did not do that with Kaiser's Germany after World War I. They rubbed the loser's nose in it. And look what we got. We got Nazis. Yeah, it didn't World work out. Two, fascism, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Another person who tromped around Europe. Well, you know, then after the Cold War was over, you would think that they would have tried to uh, welcome Russia in. Uh, you have to, again, you have to grit your teeth a little bit to do so. But, uh, Russia felt it was on the other side of the curtain, and the curtain kept pushing east. I mean, NATO is right on the border of Russia in the Baltics right now. And if Ukraine joined, it would be the same in the south. And these are invasion routes that really matter because 
Russia has been invaded from the West many times by the Poles, by the um, twice by Napoleon. And of course, the last German invasion was the Nazis, where they had scorched earth, the most yeah. cataclysmic combat in human history. And they lost uh, 28 to 30 million people. And, and it resonates. Their resonates. ninth celebration is coming up. And people are thinking, mm -hmm. well, Putin's going to try something here to get some sort of a victory by then. World War II is a big thing. And the reason was that the Soviets beat the Nazis and just just cataclysmic combat. 85% of the Wehrmacht, German Wehrmacht casualties were on the Eastern Front. Yes. And, and mm -hmm. it was, and they remember that. And uh, those invasion routes, Poland uh, is now in NATO. The Baltics are now in NATO. And Ukraine, uh, it, you know, that's the whole problem right there. They, they have a security, they have legitimate security concerns. I'm not saying I support the, what they did here because I think they're making it worse by now Finland and Sweden are going to oh, join. We've got yeah. more NATO troops pushed forward. Um, he's got Ukrainian nationalism. So it was kind of counterproductive what he did. Extremely, extremely counterproductive and vicious, really, yeah. in its implementation. But but and, and Russia does have legitimate, legitimate security concerns on the West because it's very flat. Uh, there mm -hmm. and and that's why he wants to lock up Ukraine, Belarus, uh, th those those areas. It's interesting to put this in context of maybe Ukrainian and Russian character and opinion. Bill Watkins, you spent some time in the in Ukraine, as I recall. Um, what can you tell us about the sense of Ukrainian national identity as distinct from Russian from the time when you may have had your contact? No, I was last there in 2019 and really was in the east and a lot of the what is now occupied territory, for example, uh, Berdansk. I taught at Berdansk State University where not too many weeks ago I was it was on the news with a, a Russian ship sunk uh, there at the harbor, uh, not very far from Mariupol. Um, there was sort of a split in my class. I had some Ukrainian nationalist students that only wanted Ukrainian spoken at the state mm, university, mm -hmm. whereas others that, uh, and again, everyone over there speaks Russian. Uh, it's uh, no matter what part you speak Russian. What translator did you have, to, into Russian or into Ukrainian or both? Uh, into Ukrainian uh, was my translator. But uh, there were a number of uh, students that uh, weren't so gung-ho uh, at the time. Um, about uh, Ukrainian nationalism. They just wanted to live and get along. I had others that uh, their families had fled from uh, the Donbass, the occupied areas there. Uh, so there was a split there. Uh, you know, still many looked on uh, as you know, Russians as their brothers, uh, kinsmen. I uh, have a feeling that has changed uh, for a lot of them now with the invasion. Mm. Um, in Zaporizhia, where uh, the fighting is approaching, and we've seen uh, the convoy recently arrive from the steelworks in Mariupol. Mm -hmm. um, I have a professor friend there who hosted me that he is currently interviewing uh, these individuals from Mariupol for uh, evidence of war crimes uh, that wow. will uh, undoubtedly happen at some time when the conflict is over at the ICJ. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, you know, certainly attitudes uh, have ch uh, changed greatly would be my guess with uh, the destruction and the strife 
um, so far. As, could, it, could it be said that the sense of Ukrainian distinct national identity may have been heightened by this invasion? No, there's no doubt. I think it has from the, the emails I've been able to exchange with some of my friends still over there. This is really, uh, and I agree with Ivan about the NATO expansion as a you know, certainly a cause of the conflict. But I think uh, Putin just made a terrible miscalculation because he's going to end up not only possibly with uh, Ukraine uh, pushing some of his troops out of the region, and who knows, they might even win the conflict with Western weapons, but he spited himself because uh, Finland, Sweden will enter NATO. So his situation that, again, he had a, a decent gripe about with NATO expansion gets worse. Ukrainian mm -hmm. nationalism increases as these people uh, really forge themselves into a nation in this fight. Uh, mm -hmm. And his country's situation is all the worse. It was uh, uh, while we can explain some reasons that he might have had the outcome, uh, not going to be good for Russia. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, given the fact that uh, Putin's military has been so vicious um, and really unforgivably brutal. Um, it's easy for me, maybe many other people, to feel a, a great sympathy for uh, the apparent underdog. Ukraine is smaller and less, you know, militarily equipped and so forth in principle. Um, I, I feel a great sympathy. One almost hopes to see them, you know, uh, pushing them back and triumphing even further and so forth. But Ivan, from the point of view of somebody who might, let's say, be adv advising Western policymakers, which you know we hope you're kind of in that position, um, if if peace is to be uh, achieved, uh, and, and any peace is better than ongoing vicious, brutal war that could escalate. If peace is to be achieved, should we be hoping that Ukraine gets the maximum potential advantage on the battlefield so as to to force a a favorable peace, or what? What should? What's the best way for this thing to wind down? Well, I think that's probably the only way you're going to get Putin to to um, uh, have some sort of a peace is have the Ukrainians at least have some advantage on the battlefield. But the problem that you have is, I think that Ukrainians have already uh, the U.S. has sort of suggested neutrality, uh, and the Ukrainians have said yes. But I think the sticking point with the Ukrainians is. They they would like their territory back that Russia you know Crimea and right. uh, you know the Donbass region back and I you know the problem is Russia has had that for you know what eight year almost eight years now and the separatists there uh, you know the people who have the Russian affinity uh, they're not going to want to be they're going to feel abandoned mm -hmm. because you know you've left us to the wolves so that's you know Putin's not really going to want to do that. And Crimea is very strategic to him. That's why. He oh, there's no way they'll give up Crimea. Right. Because it's a it's a naval base. It's very strategic. And they don't have you know, they need a, historically they've needed a warm water port and it's you still have to go through the Turkish Dardanelles. But it's a uh, you know, it's a great military naval base there. And uh, so uh, they, they're not going to give up that. So the problem, you know, any situation, you can eventually reach an agreement. But it, this one is kind of vexing because you can't really see it uh, forming, you know, because. But a lot of it before. has to do. Right. But I think a lot of it must have to do with the degree to which uh, the U.S. presidential administration 
you know, tells or gives signals to uh, Mr. Zelensky's regime in Kiev, how far, how much is the U.S. should the U.S. back up the Ukrainian position? Uh, sh should the U.S. stand for the proposition that every square inch of Ukraine should be given back or else uh, war will escalate with U.S. support? Is that what the U.S. should do? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, okay. Russia has I, knew you'd be, I knew you'd be clear on that, Ivan. <laughs> Russia has more nuclear weapons mm -hmm. than we do. We don't. Uh, Biden's quite correct that we don't do a no-fly no zone because that would be uh, bring us into direct contact with Soviet or excuse me, Russian forces. And uh, uh, they were also right not to raise the alert level because so far that's been a bluff. Uh, the Russians have made no operational attempt to uh, increase their alert level. And I think Russia's actually been very cautious about not fighting with a, a superior foe. So, and, and NATO, believe me, is superior in every way to the Russian forces, uh, both conventional and nuclear. And so, He's probably not going to do that, but uh, he, you know, he has his own internal thing. I mean, he's the strong man, the guy. And if mm -hmm. and if uh, the opposition to the war gets bad enough in Russia, if people actually figure out how many people they've probably lost there, uh, you know, he could be in trouble uh, at home. I'm not predicting that necessarily because he is a strong man, and I don't think U.S. policy should be based on it. But I think you know we control the spigot of the weapons, but the but the Ukrainians can fight on even without the U.S. They were you know, doing uh, well at, without the, you know, the 50 uh, billion worth that we've given them since the war started. They were doing well right from the start. And part of that is U.S. training. And, but it's also a will to fight. It shows you what organizations can do if their workforce is motivated versus not motivated like the it's Russians. stunning. You, I thought that the human factor was over with technology, but maybe not. Not in warfare. No, you you yeah. have to. Those are a lot of those are conscripts for the Russians and the, the Ukrainians are. Whenever you attack another country, uh, as we found out in Iraq, there's resistance, uh, and it takes a while to put down that resistance. And sometimes it's not successful in in being you know putting it down because they're fighting for their homes their families and the more the russians brutalize them the harder they're going to fight so it's a bit really bad it's bad for any military to kill civilians it's not only immoral yeah. which of course is the first thing the second is, thing yeah. is it makes the enemy fight harder right yeah well i, I think you are probably a voice for judicious compromise uh, in a number of ways i hope that your voice is heard and DC policy circles, Ivan. Well, I hope so too. I hope they they stop with this rhetoric. I think they've got to stop with the rhetoric. Uh, uh, Tom Thomas Friedman agrees with me, and today's New York Times. I rarely agree with him, but he he wrote a pretty good column today uh, about let's use restraint in the language and let's use restraint otherwise. There. I am going to uh, turn our attention back to our side of the Atlantic. Uh, and I'm probably going to need some help from Bill Watkins on this one. Bill, we were talking earlier about the fact that uh, last week uh, the uh, Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, announced uh, in testimony before a uh, uh, House committee that uh, he's starting this new thing called the Disinformation Governance Board. And he said it's going to be focused on uh, this 
is preventing the spread of disinformation in minority communities ahead of the 2020 midterm elections. And then Jen Psaki, President Biden's spokesperson, said that, of course, President Biden supports this effort. Uh, She says, we know there has been a range of disinformation out there about a range of topics. I mean, including COVID, for example, and also elections and eligibility. Um, What I can tell you is that the objective of the board is to prevent disinformation and misinformation misinformation from traveling around the country in a range of communities. So that's Jen Psaki and uh, uh, Secretary Mayorkas. What, What do you think this... Disinformation Governance Board is all about. It It sounds pretty darn eerie to me, Bill. Graham, how could you be against the truth and our new Ministry <laughs> of Truth? Uh, comrade, please, uh, you must support these things. No, obviously, what a terrible idea. We have a First Amendment, so we will have a marketplace of ideas where people uh, can get information from various sources. I mean, as usual, prior to the internet, there's always been a danger people will um, publish in newspapers or otherwise incorrect uh, facts, or they will have certain opinions that others disagree with. Well, what if their opinions are inflammatory? We shouldn't allow inflammatory opinions, should we? No, Provocative opinions? Right, especially <laughs> uh, not to influence a voting group in minority communities that the Democratic Party wants to count on solidly uh, for an election victory. Oh, what a cynic you are, Bill. But I mean, that's the stated <laughs> purpose of this. No, it is Orwellian. Of course it is. Uh, it's something that you really, uh, I mean, this is a bridge too far to have a ministry of truth here, which is essentially what this is. And if you look at how many mistakes, honest or otherwise, yes, or otherwise, our mm-hmm. government has made about important information uh, or our mainstream media, whether it be a Hunter Biden's laptop is a fake. The Russians uh, rigged the 2016 election and controlled the outcome. Uh, COVID, you don't need to wear masks. You need to wear masks. Uh, Kamala Harris eventually uh, started out saying uh, she wouldn't take a vaccine. Oh, yeah, because Trump helped develop it. She said she wasn't going to take the vaccine. Right, because she couldn't trust it. Then all of a sudden, if you're not getting the vaccine, you're some sort of traitor uh, to America because you have concerns about what you're putting in your body and uh, have some autonomy issues. Uh, in light of that track record, uh, I really don't know who would trust our government to determine what's the truth, what's disinformation. No, sad uh, to say. They need to be out of that business. This uh, new board needs to be shut down from, uh, thank you, George W. Bush, for Department of Homeland Security mm-hmm. itself uh, sounds a bit mm-hmm. Orwellian there, but a terrible, terrible idea. Well, I also, I, I read that the apparently the choice of the Biden administration to, to be the disinformation chief is a woman named Nina, Nina Jankowicz, uh, and she uh, is already in charge of the Homeland Security Department's effort to fight online disinformation on elections and coronavirus. And she has already been quoted uh, in the past as saying that she's an expert on disinformation and she's called the Hunter Biden laptop story alleged and part of a Kremlin influence uh, scheme. Now, of course, we've discovered recently that even the mainstream media is acknowledging that the Hunter Biden laptop story was accurate, was not made up. But what about in the intervening time? What if this Nina Jankowicz had been in charge 
and she decided that the story was false, would she have had the power to suppress news about it from the perch in the government? And until it turns out the facts turn around and then the government changes his mind, and then she says, how could anything like this actually operate in America? Wouldn't this have been, wouldn't this be totally destroyed by lawsuits, Bill? No, it, it would certainly be uh, obstructed by lawsuits. And we're talking about our friend, Mr. Putin and his country and how he manages information there about the war. And we certainly hear many individuals uh, complaining that he shut off uh, links to Western sites and others. So his people uh, won't hear the truth about that. And I agree, that's a terrible thing he's done. But you know, how's our government any better with this new board essentially uh, trying to do the same thing, but they're going to cloak themselves in the American flag and platitudes about democracy and protecting minority voters and march and do the same thing. You're absolutely right. It, with and this new position, rather than just being uh, some talking head at the Woodrow Wilson Center, uh, yes. now she uh, is empowered and can use uh, the vast networks uh, from the swamp. Uh, to suppress stories if she thinks they're untrue. Um, you, you can see there's a, a very familiar reflex at work um, in this matter and in so many others. And the reflex is, uh, it's kind of a progressive reflex, but maybe it's become a quintessentially American reflex, namely something's bad, so the government needs to coercively stop it. Um, you know, sometimes when things are bad, it's better for the government not to coercively stop it, but for private parties to get to work at it and you know talk about it and discredit stupidity. Uh, government coercion should be used so sparingly, it seems to me, because it has a track record of so much abuse. But this reflex is a pretty strong one. No, it's I the did notice first resort now for people. It's the first resort. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, if I could just add one thing. Oh, please. Um, I, I second uh, Bill's comments. Uh, I think probably the original threat was a bit overstated on the Russian uh, manipulation of social media in the first place. Uh, that doesn't mean that Donald Trump should have solicited somebody to do an illegal hack in the Democratic uh, National Committee. But certainly the other part of that, you know, election interference was supposed to be this massive social uh, media interference by the Russians. And I think that that was vastly overstated, uh, even the they probably tried some stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying they didn't try anything. But I think, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson said the best way to counter, you know, uh, uh, scandalous disinformation or any other kind of disinformation is to just enter the uh, marketplace of ideas and put the truth out or what you think is the truth. You mm -hmm. know, the argument, mm -hmm. let's have an argument about it rather than having a ministry, if you want, or a department uh, board to... Uh, judge facts and information. That, that is quite scary, I think. You know, uh, the late P.J. O'Rourke, who was a, a good friend of the Independent Institute and a good friend of our, our late wonderful colleague, David Thoreau, he, he had said in the past uh, that the Department of Homeland Security, he said, sounded like a failed savings and loan. <laughs> the, the last thing you want to be given more authority. I did notice that uh, Secretary Mayorkas he did in the hullabaloo that ensued after his initial announcement. He kind of said some backtracking things. I was relieved to see that. He backtracked a bit by saying, well, there was no question that the department could have done a better job in communicating about this board. 
And he said, really, it's not about speech. It's about the connectivity to violence, he said. Okay. Well, even that makes me a little concerned because if you can make lots of claims about the connectivity of speech to violence, and they're not all true. It's too easy a claim, isn't it, Bill? No, I think most violence I've seen connected to speech comes from the left, and something tells me that they're not interested in suppressing uh, Black Lives Matter speech or anything like that. Well, um, what if it's connected to violence? Well, I saw uh, Vice President Harris wanted to bail folks out, uh, take up money for rioters and such. Yeah, I don't indeed, think right? if it's the right kind of violence, they don't have a problem with it. Yeah, well, let's make sure we speak to our side, too, or so-called our side. I'm not interested in the violence of the people who stormed the Capitol, either. Uh, violence is no good, but speech is, regulating speech is never the answer. You know, that's just never the answer. No, Ivan okay. said it best. We, we need more speech, not less, in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Ivan says good things. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I, get a, I get a thought off every once in a while. <laughs> you do, Ivan. You definitely do. Yeah, you, you should be one of those guys who comes up with the sound bites. You need better sound bites from Ivan Elon. So, okay, legal stuff going a little further. Um, coming your way, Bill. Boy, oh boy, it's just a week for legal news. Um, how could it be, Bill, that a uh, preliminary draft opinion written by one of the associate justices of the U.S. Supreme Court could be leaked in advance of the court's decision and issuance? Has this ever happened before? And should we be glad or sad about it? Sure. In the past, you've had leaks about a vote change or how the court was going to rule um, uh, in a particular case, you know, some days before. But I've never in my life gotten my hands on a draft Supreme Court opinion uh, before it was issued. And I'll be frank, as soon as I could pull that thing offline, um, that was all I was doing was reading. You were reading that avidly. <laughs> in, in fact, I just point out to our participants today that uh, uh, William J. Watkins Jr. has already published a piece on our website called The Beacon, in which he analyzes the draft opinion, much to be recommended. But but go on, Bill. You've, this is unprecedented. Okay. No, it's unprecedented, and it's unfortunate. And really what we see here, and we don't know who leaked the opinion. I think my guess would be, I think it would be logical, that it would be someone on the left that, again, we've had this rhetoric in every election that apparently... Um, Abortion is the most sacred right in America, and if it is not fully protected by the Supreme Court, uh, we become Vladimir Putin's Russia. And uh, the progressives who are believing this sort of claptrap, uh, seeing this opinion coming out, uh, one of their number in the Supreme Court, probably a clerk for one of the justices, uh, hopes that by leaking this, uh, that pressure can be put on the court as an institution from Congress, from the media and others that maybe um, you can have uh, a switch of a vote. Uh, perhaps mm -hmm. a weak link on that opinion could be a Kavanaugh would be um, my best guess. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe even a Gorsuch or a Barrett, who knows? But Kavanaugh, probably the best bet to flip. Uh, I would imagine Chief Justice Roberts um, is not on board with this opinion. Uh, well, according to the draft, his name is not yet appended to that opinion, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would, I, I see this again as a five to four decision right now with uh, Roberts uh, in the minority because he's an institutionalist. He doesn't care so much about uh, the truth. You, as 
uh, you and I talked about earlier and all the criticism of what the court perhaps is about to do overturning Roe and Casey, there is very little from any scholar defending the legal reasoning of those decisions and why Alito uh, and his opinion is wrong on the law. It's all right. policy. This is good right. policy. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a fundamental right that we can't even question. Or, or they're justice arguments that come from beyond the text of the Constitution about the unfairness of nature to women and so forth. Um, that kind of rhetoric is not legal rhetoric. It may be compelling, but it doesn't seem to have a place in the law. No, it doesn't have a place <clears throat> in the law. And what people shouldn't forget, let's say this opinion is published and this is the law. Uh, policy, they ha can make any argument they want in their various state legislatures and lobby their elected representatives uh, if they think the Roe regime and the Casey regime, the undue burden standard uh, was appropriate. States can write that into law. Uh, it's not over. Uh, the problem is we live in a world where we're no longer a federation of states. Uh, there's no real federalism uh, that people recognize in the United States. They want national solutions to every problem. The states right. mm -hmm. are not allowed to be laboratories of democracy so we can watch different approaches, see how they work, look at the merits and demerits and craft policies otherwise. It's a winner-take-all system of which our country was not designed to be, and this is at the height of it. Yes. Um, you know, we're moving now beyond the question of uh, the leakage and the strategy behind that into the apparent uh, argument being made by apparently Justice Alito to overturn Roe and Casey, as you say. Um, I heard the other day as I was driving to work, I heard a, a law professor being interviewed uh, on, the, on the radio and his comment was that if this were to happen and Roe were struck down, Casey were struck down, and the states reacquired their jurisdiction over abortion law, that America would turn into a nightmarish, crazy quilt of differing rules. He said nightmarish. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I understand why it would be a crazy quilt, but why would that be nightmarish? I mean, isn't it really the case that there are some issues that they cut so deep uh, and divide America so profoundly that maybe it really is not possible or even wise, much less constitutionally valid, to have one solution for the entire country. I mean, a lot of these educational things fall in the same category. Um, America has actually a constitutional framework which could allow for the, the separation, the diffusion, uh, laboratories, 50 laboratories of democracy, as we like to say sometimes, we, we actually have a constitutional structure that can contain irreconcilable uh, moral divergences. It's the constitutional order with states and a federal government. What's so bad, what's so nightmarish about using our system to contain our insoluble disagreements? How much easier would it be to get along if the people of California, for example, who are tend to be much more progressive than my people in South Carolina, uh, could legislate uh, for, on their own for abortion, whether their state wants to implement the death penalty. Um, they can handle their homeless population as they see best, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Uh, if they want um, uh, a minimum wage of $20 an hour, let them enact it and we can watch and see how well all this plays out. 
uh, that, that, those are internal domestic matters that the framers told us each state would be free to govern. Mm -hmm. My state mm -hmm. would and does probably look at those matters different, but it's no skin off their back if we uh, enact laws that are consistent with our culture, with the temperament of our people, with our local circumstances. But again, that has been lost to this idea of there has to be mm -hmm. a national solution. The quilt you mentioned right. is forgotten. It looks like right. even with difficult issues like um, drug legalization, marijuana, mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. starting to see that quilt across the country with uh, yeah. recreational drug use uh, legalized and possession in many places. Uh, and you know the world hasn't ended. Uh, the rest of us that don't have those laws can mm -hmm. watch. How, how is crime exactly. going up? Is addiction yeah. going up? Or I've read that Colorado's having second thoughts, for example. But you know that's their deal. Figure it out. No, that's right. And that's again, that's there. I'm glad that they've experimented with this. And if it doesn't work, they want to uh, say you know there have been unintended consequences. Well, it's great that, say, my state or another state has watched that and said, huh, maybe we don't want to do that based on what's happened, uh, rather than the whole country being forced headlong uh, mm -hmm. into a matter. Uh, it's tremendous benefits to federalism if we yeah, could just really, embrace it. There really are such benefits. It's, a, it's an amazing system. I mean, there are some things that are laid down plain uh, that have to be the same everywhere, but they're pretty minimal. Uh, and the things which uh, the federal government can and cannot do are laid out in the text of the Constitution. I'm looking at it here. Um, I keep this often in my pocket. You probably do too, Bill. Uh, and, you know, the question really comes down to, for a judge and the court, comes down to not, you know, well, women need abortion or women don't need access to abortion. Really, the question is, um, where in the four corners of this document um, are the fixed rules and where is there jurisdictional uh, wiggle room left for the states. And I think it may well be that if this decision comes down, something like it is uh, indicated in this leak, that it may be a remarkable rejuvenation of America's constitutional federalism. California's Governor Newsom just said, for example, he, he's not going to take it. California's going to statutorily codify all the rights to abortion. California's probably going to pay for abortions, elective abortions. Uh, they're just not going to stand for it. Well, okay. I'm a Californian. I can vote against that if I want to or for it, but California can do that. Uh, Gavin Newsom, he's just upset that the thing has been given back to him. <laughs> he thought it was settled. No, but we got to be careful here because while I agree with you, it could be a, a regeneration of federalism. Do not underestimate uh, the Biden administration and Congress and how mm. the courts and Congress have manipulated certain clauses of the Constitution, mainly the Commerce <laughs> Clause and uh, the Spending Clause. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I would bet that if this decision comes out, there will be a strong push to still have a nationalized uh, abortion law using the commerce power, essentially yep. arguing that, well, if mm -hmm. some states no longer uh, have abortion, this will affect the national market for the procedure. And therefore, this substantially affects interstate commerce as some women will travel uh, to other states to have mm -hmm. abortions, and therefore Congress can act, or they will withhold perhaps uh, health care funds uh, from mm -hmm. states if they mm -hmm. do not uh, enact abortion laws in line with what Congress 
directs. Uh, mm -hmm. So unfortunately, uh, there are avenues, uh, even if this opinion is issued, that the national government, though it frankly has, you know, there's no power over abortion for it in the Constitution. But these clauses, again, commerce essentially applied to trade, really deep water shipping and to remove mm -hmm. internal trade barriers in right, the union. Right. Um, but it's been so manipulated that almost any activity, uh, if you look at it in the aggregate, they say affects commerce and they legislate. Well, you know, there are six or seven months still in which the party which uh, formally supports uh, full access to abortion at all times for all reasons, that party retains majority in the House and the Senate and a cult the presidency. Seven months. During that seven months, they could try and gain uh, that legislation and maybe gain some votes for it in the November elections. Although it's, unfortunately, it's just as likely to have the opposite effect. It's, it's a very difficult political calculation, I would think, for President Biden and others. Uh, because, after all, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said uh, that she feared that the decision in Roe would actually under back in the 1973 would actually undermine support for liberalized abortion laws because it would so exacerbate and inflame moral concerns in the country. Uh, strangely enough, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was something of a Roe skeptic herself, no, and she, that she may was, still apply. No, she was right because I mean, much like gay marriage uh, with the Obergefell decision states were enacting progressive laws, progressive mm -hmm. constitutional amendments, the left was winning, mm -hmm. but they had to have it all. So they short-circuited political debate, citizens trying to um, uh, influence one another uh, and their elected representatives, and they went to the courts, to unelected officials, and they mm -hmm. short-circuited all of that and created a firestorm that has never let up, uh, especially with the abortion issue. So I think Ginsburg was right, though she was obviously a big supporter of abortion rights, but it inflamed the political process. And uh, will we ever have peace on this issue where, again, states can uh, enact their own laws, people can vote with their feet under a mm -hmm. federal system? Of, of Roe and Casey, uh, Justice Ginsburg, the late Justice Ginsburg, said, doctrinal limbs too swiftly shaped, experience teaches, may prove unstable. Okay, now here's the Alito opinion basically saying these doctrinal limbs <laughs> were too swiftly shaped and they're unstable and we're taking the limbs down. It's almost like he's echoing Ruth Bader Ginsburg unexpectedly. Yeah, he, so. qu he quotes Justice Ginsburg in his opinion. So uh, I hear. Uh, he also quotes uh, a number of liberal scholars that, again, admit that Roe had a shaky constitutional ground from uh, Lawrence Tribe. Some of Harry Blackman's own law clerks uh, have admitted that this is made up. And as Justice Alito <laughs> pointed out, uh, the Roe majority didn't really point to a constitutional provision where the right uh, is found. It's sort of somewhere in there, and we're using the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, trust us, we've got this. <laughs> um, I, I've been ignoring Ivan. Feel free to jump in here, Ivan, if you want to opine on this matter of federalism, especially. Yeah, I, I, I was just going to ask Bill a question. Um, Brett Stevens, uh, who's, a, who's a conservative, wrote a piece today saying, uh, they shouldn't. He made a Burkean institutionalist uh, type of argument that Roberts might make uh, that 
they shouldn't overturn Roe versus Wade because it's a, you know, it's a, I don't want to say revolutionary, but it's a radical change. And uh, as an institutionalist, it, you know, undermines incremental change, which conservative in the, some, some in the conservative movement uh, think undermines the rule of law. But I, I would, from your comments, I would say that you probably disagreed with that uh, perspective. I, I do disagree with it, though you will see a lot in the dissents, I'm sure, if this pans out like we think about stare decisis, uh, the value of precedent, how people order their affairs based on uh, certain precedents, uh, the length of time this decision has been around since 73, which is, what, almost 50 years okay. now about. Uh, so, I mean, th those are not inconsequential arguments. Uh, I, I, I get that. Uh, however, but what I cannot uh, get away from is the lack of a legal foundation for that opinion or uh, any of the, you know, the Griswold line of mm -hmm. cases that led to Roe, where uh, we talk about penumbras having emanations, these shadow zones from the Bill of Rights, where oh, it might, you know, the shadow of amendments dealing with quartering troops, searches and seizures, etc., somehow coalesce to form this uh, right to an abortion and um, contraceptives, etc., in some of the court's cases. Again, are some of the laws we might think silly, like Griswold, that married couples in Connecticut uh, couldn't have access to contraceptives. As that Justice, was silly. As Justice Black said, that's an asinine law. If I were in the legislature, Black says, I would uh, not vote for such a law. But I'm not in the legislature, and I don't <clears throat> sit in a super legislature, uh, which the Supreme Court claims itself to be. Um, and this goes back, this takes us to the whole just dangerous web that substantive due process um, has uh, brought us the court using the words due process to see certain liberty interests uh, again in things they like and constitutionalizing them. Uh, it's been mm -hmm. dreadful, taken um, so much out of the political process, given the court's unelected individuals these superpowers uh, to make constitutional law to uh, frame these matters. It's just not been good for our republic. You know, um, the argument uh, made in defense of Roe and Casey oftentimes goes like this. <clears throat> uh, women have a constitutional right somehow or other. Well, really, then, if you unpack that, people say, well, the argument really is women have a natural right to have an abortion. And so if women have a natural right, it's got to be in here somehow because they have a natural right to it. And this is really a very interesting point to me because a lot of Americans feel strongly that certain things are natural rights or naturally good and naturally correct, and they may or may not be. Um, but actually, both, both the left and the right have a bad temptation to say that because something's naturally right or a natural right, it's got to be upheld by this document. Well, you know, it's not the same thing, actually. The law is not morality writ in stone. The law is distinct. It has its own character, and that can disappoint the left. It can disappoint the right. But you know, in the long run, we are all so much better off by having a stable written rule of law that doesn't flex with the latest trends of opinion. We are all safer, even though it'll disappoint both sides because it's, it's not as morally glorious uh, as we might wish it were, whether from one side 
or the other. Uh, can you comment, Bill? Um, we're coming to a close here pretty soon, but can you comment on some of these other cases like this Christian flag flying on the Boston City Hall, which the Boston government wouldn't allow, but maybe the court's going to make him do it? What's that all about? Did you follow that? No, yeah. Essentially, uh, this is a unanimous opinion, actually. Uh, Boston uh, tells an individual that though they have three flagpoles outside their city hall and regularly uh, let individuals for special occasions apply and fly a flag, um, again, for a short duration for, say, a celebration of, of whatever. Uh, they've done it with gay rights. They've done it with private corporations, a bank, uh, that you can do that. Uh, but they declined to let a gentleman fly the Christian flag uh, when he made his application. And that's the only application they've ever denied. Uh, the only one they did. They had the, the, the rainbow flag up there frequently, I bet. Yep. Uh, okay, well, fine. But why did they single him out? What was what was their reason? I wonder. Yeah, <laughs> we know what their reason was. Their stated reason, though, was that they were afraid that this would cause an establishment of religion. And to be... And the others don't? To be halfway fair <clears throat> uh, to Boston there, the Supreme Court's lemon test and its establishment case law is such a mess uh, that... I would I'd almost want to give them a break for coming mm -hmm. to that ridiculous conclusion because the law is so um, uns just uh, been tortured there. When you look at our text and history, uh, the founders wanted to make sure that Congress didn't establish a national religion, i.e. that the Episcopal Church is the national religion of the right. U.S. Right. Um, and, and such. It has nothing to do with flying a flag or having right. a menorah. Right. Uh, at a, a Christmas. Uh, All sorts of symbolic affirmations that just were not part of the concern about establishment at the time. Right. But the court uh, unanimously held, and of course, Justice Breyer has to come through with a four or five point test that he made up out of his head uh, that we look at. Uh, but essentially, it was the right result that uh, this was not government speech, government sponsored speech. Yes. Uh, this was not an establishment of religion. Uh, now, of course, Boston could, in retrospect, now adopt certain policies about what it will allow there and yes. treat mm -hmm. that even handedly. But uh, their whole establishment worry uh, was misguided. And if you get nine to nothing in the Supreme Court, that ought to tell you something about how that ought to tell you something. <laughs> yeah, it definitely should. Wow. OK, well, there's a lot of things going on all around the world. Um, Let's just come back for a landing to Ivan. Um, do you want to make any predictions or offer your best words of advice to Secretary of State Blinken, Ivan, on the Ukraine situation? Parting Well, wisdom, I would please. just uh, <laughs> offer some words of caution. We got sucked into World War I when we loaned lots of money uh, to the English, uh, particularly the English, but some to the French. And so when we're flooding the, the, the arms over to Ukraine, uh, we're even getting more deeper, well, we're getting deeper than we were in supporting the British entry into World War I. And I, I, as a background, I think World War I was when we went off the deep end into foreign intervention. We hadn't intervened in European wars, and I think that helped lead to World War II. It's an unconventional 
look at history, but I think it's it's a realistic one. So I and and all this rhetoric about the genocide and Putin being a war criminal and all that stuff, it's probably true. Maybe he's been, been very brutal, but whether you really want to say that, I think the rhetoric they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves with the triumphalist mm-hmm. rhetoric, and I think that uh, you know Ukraine is winning, and uh, they probably should. They probably should uh, make Ukraine pay us back for the weapons eventually. Maybe that's unrealistic, but and they've already committed to do this. But yeah, and they have to watch which weapons they send. I would not send aircraft. I think they were correct in doing that because they. I got to give President Biden credit there. Right. Well, they could bomb Moscow, and you know that's <laughs> the Russians are going to regard that as an escalatory measure. Maybe if you give them that's okay, but. Uh, no planes. Mm-hmm. Okay, that point well taken, Ivan. And then turning back to you finally, Bill Watkins. Uh, so uh, what's your advice to Chief Justice Roberts? Should he now, under this pressure from the public disclosure, should he then try and join the majority so as to control the opinion and change all of Alito's words? What, what's your advice to the poor Chief Justice? <clears throat> My advice to the poor chief justice is when you have a decision that has no basis in American constitutional law as Roe and Casey, and he knows this, as much as he wants to protect the institution, do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, This needs to be scrapped. This is just a terrible decision. I understand he doesn't want the court to seem a political uh, message to Justice Roberts. It's too late for that. Uh, The public already perceives that. Just do the right thing as you read the law. Moreover, if he does finagle and maneuver uh, so as to prevent the court from seeming political, that in itself would be actually evidence of a political calculation on his part. If the Obamacare opinion wasn't a complete political calculation by Roberts, it that, was, yeah. That was, I think, worse than uh, in the long term than the court striking it down, uh, which was his worry. Uh, then, you know, wh- what shall we say about this? Uh, you know, Chief Justice, that battle is lost. Do the right thing. Uh, All right. Let's hope he's listening in here. Uh, <laughs> so, to both of you, Bill Watkins, I say thank you so much, Bill. Great to be here. Pleasure. And Ivan Eland, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. And all of our friends who joined us from around the country and maybe from some places overseas, thank you for joining us for Independent Outlook. Come back in a couple of weeks as we give you some more pearls of wisdom on Independent Outlook from the Independent Institute uh, here in California. And of course, you can always go to our website, independent.org, where you can find Bill Watkins' latest uh, analysis of court issues. Uh, articles by Ivan Eland and many other people, independent.org. Visit us as your resource. Thanks to all and to all. Goodbye for today.